Well, good morning and greetings in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus. He is Lord of the church. I trust he is Lord of your life and my life. I understand this is a bit of a special uh, day for you as a church, a time of some change, a time of some transition, and I trust that God will be glorified in that. The work of the church goes on, and God gives grace for those uh, changes that come along in our lives, in the life of the church. I'd like to turn to 1 Thessalonians for a scripture reading and a few thoughts. I want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Someone has said that chapter 1 here describes the ideal congregation, and chapter 2 describes the ideal pastor. I'm not sure what the brothers have in mind to uh, share here this morning and this evening. I understand probably focused somewhat on leadership. Uh, I'd like to focus a little more this morning on the, the congregation then. What can we as a congregation do to be the ideal congregation or to, uh, to be an encouragement to, to our pastors? <clears throat> and I don't want to differentiate too much here between uh, ministry and laity. Uh, you know, we're all in this together. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all involved in the work of the church. And of course, there is some difference, though, in, in responsibility. Uh, <clears throat> a church needs leadership, we understand. And there are some things uh, about leadership that may be a bit different than uh, those who do not have that calling. Usually there's some honor that goes along with leadership. Some honor, maybe, that others don't quite have, some recognition. But there's also some responsibility, some weight of responsibility that goes along with leadership that others don't have. So it seems that God has a way of allowing that to balance out, lest leadership become too exalted by the honor, or lest they become too discouraged by the weight of responsibility. I believe God has a way of balancing that out. Okay, I want to look now here at chapter 1. Let me read these 10 verses and then make a few comments. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost." So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, 
For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. The ideal congregation. I'd like to notice just a few points here, a few characteristics of this congregation. Uh, first of all, they were... They received the gospel. See that in verse uh, 6. Having received the word. uh, Of course, that's what we need to do first of all. Receive the message. Perhaps they were somewhat like the Bereans. Who received the word with all readiness of mind, it says. So to be the congregation that God wants us to be, we need to be receptive to the gospel. Receptive to what our pastors preach. Receptive to the message. Then they also uh, practiced it in verse 3. Notice uh, what Paul says here about this congregation. He mentions faith, hope, and charity, interestingly. The fruit of the Spirit. Here was a congregation that was practicing the gospel, not only receiving it, but practicing it in their daily walk of life. And I believe that's something that uh, we as Anabaptist believers uh, Uh, hold precious, hold important, not only that uh, of receiving the gospel and allowing to to, uh, change our lives and make us new creatures in Christ, but then living it out in our daily walk of life. Now we also see that they, not only did they receive it and they practiced it, but they also proclaimed it in verse 8. From you sounded out the word of the Lord. They, They were so enthused about the gospel, they were proclaiming it. I think it says in verse, is it verse 7, you were in samples. They were proclaiming the gospel both by their lives and by their words. So they, were, they received it, they practiced it, they proclaimed it. And I believe because they were that kind of a congregation, then Paul could say, I'm, I'm giving thanks for you. Now, Paul was not the resident pastor here, I don't think. But he had been instrumental, if I'm not mistaken, in, in starting this church. His heart was with the churches. And so as Paul looked at this congregation and heard about them, he said, I'm thanking God for you. And I believe that uh, is a challenge to us, maybe. Uh, are we that kind of church members that uh, cause our pastor to give thanks for us? When our pastor thinks about us, can they say, oh, I thank God for that faithful brother, that faithful sister. <clears throat> now, we're, we're, not living, we're not living to please our pastors, of course. But we're living to please the Lord. And when we do that, I'm confident that our, it also is a blessing to our pastors. <clears throat> Sometimes, you know, a pastor, there may be, People in the church, when you see them coming, you wonder, you sort of cringe inside. You wonder, what kind of a complaint will I hear now? But I hope we can be members who cause our pastors to thank God for us as faithful supporters. Verse 6 indicates that these people were indeed uh, Paul says that you became followers of us and of the Lord. They were, they were supportive in the church. 
Now, I'd like to just mention three things yet that I believe you can do and I can do. Three things you can do to support, to help make your congregation the ideal congregation and to be an encouragement to your pastors. And this is not an exhaustive list or not necessarily uh, you know, anything official, but just three things that came to my mind. And they all start with P, so I'm giving this as in a simple way to help you remember, uh, your prayers. <clears throat> your prayers. It has been said there's no more power in the pulpit than what there is prayer in the pew. So if you want powerful messages to come across this pulpit, it probably needs to start in your prayer closet. If you want this congregation to be an ideal congregation, I believe you need to be a people, and, I, and we need to be a people of prayer. So much, so much depends on, on our, our uh, connection with God. Prayer not only lays hold on the power of God, but prayer changes us. So I encourage you to be a people of prayer for your pastors and for each other as a church. I trust you are that. Your prayer. And then your presence. About a year ago, a lot of churches were having... Uh, online services, uh, live streaming their services. So pastors were, were going to their church building and maybe a handful of people and preaching that way. And I heard, I've heard pastors say that there, there's just something missing. When you're preaching to empty, a lot of empty pews, there's something missing. Well, I hope we don't need to go back to that. But uh, what about other times? I think it should be our desire to be at whenever the church has an activity, be it Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday evening or a work day, we should at least want to be there. I know there's times when there's legitimate reasons for us not being there, but I believe our desire should be to be there and we should be there when at all possible. Be there. Be, your presence, it pleases God. And, well, you might think that like, nobody will realize, nobody will miss me. Nobody else does. Very likely your pastors will. Very likely. Your presence is a blessing to them. And it, it, it pleases God. Your prayers, your presence. But then a little more than your presence. In fact, a lot more than your presence. More than just being a bench warmer. Your participation. Be, be available. Be willing. Sometimes take the initiative to get something done that needs to be done. That's a blessing to, to God and to leadership when there's members that put themselves to the work. Uh, when I grew up on a farm, and up till I was about 15, we farmed with mules rather than tractors. And we always had, sometimes we had a team of two mules, sometimes we're four or five or six, but there was always a, a lead mule. Is that right, Aaron? Always a lead mule. And that mule was, as I recall, harnessed up a, a bit different than the others, or reined a bit different than the others. There was always that lead mule. But you know what? All the others were expected to, to pull right along with the lead mule. There always, always needed to be a lead mule, but the others were expected to keep right up and pull along with him. And so I think that maybe a picture of how we as a congregation should function. 
Yes, we need leadership. We need someone there to provide leadership. But we need to pull together for the cause of Christ, for the work of the church. And I, I trust that you as a congregation will have been experiencing that and will continue to, uh, even in this time of transition. Please stand with me for prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence, we honor you, we praise you, we thank you for who you are, the Lord of the church, the Lord of our lives, and we thank you for the wonderful plan of redemption, that because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, as we already sang about this morning, because of that, we can be redeemed, we can be your children. Thank you for the blessing of church life having brothers and sisters of like faith. Thank you for the way you have organized the church, ordained uh, leadership, ordained, uh, yes, the way you have put every member in, in, a, in a, an important place. We know that each one of us as your people have a, a work to do, a place to fill in your work, in the work of the church. And we pray that for this congregation here at Crystal Valley, that each one would find their place here and fill their place well, that this would indeed be an ideal congregation here. It would be a blessing to you and a blessing to the leadership and, and a testimony to this community and wherever you call us to serve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your blessings on us. Thank you especially for your goodness to us as a congregation over the years and for bringing us here. We pray your blessing on our service this morning as well as this evening. Bless Brother Ken and Glenn as they preach your word this morning. May you anoint them with your spirit. Give them strength. Help them to speak as you would direct them through your spirit. And we pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Were you going to close and check to turn it over to you? You can, yes. Okay. Sure, I can do that. I'll leave the bridge and turn it over to you. Right, that'll be fine. Well, this is a bit of a special time, and we're happy to have commitment of the uh, our elders, Glenn uh, and Ken, preach this morning. This is not normal, but uh, they have been very much involved with us a leadership team. We really appreciate them. We also have a new one, Mark, who was just recently voted in for that. Uh, we'll leave him off this morning, but we really appreciate the elders and their contribution to our team. Some of you last couple of weeks have wondered what's going on and why are we here this morning? Why are we at this point of needing a leadership transfer? And I'd like to just address that briefly without taking a lot of time. We have, over the, um, I guess, one of the big reasons I have lost my helpmeet a couple of years ago, and uh, with Ann's passing, and let me be right up front and clear, I am not resentful nor bitter toward God for this. I have been very much a recipient of God's grace through this. And so... I just want to clear that up right away. I guess without, <clears throat> without her, I don't have 
her insight. I don't have her perspective. I don't have her as a sounding board. And I feel like church leadership is a bit too crucial to just wing it on my own. Even though I have a good team, certainly appreciate them, uh, I still feel a bit handicapped without her. Also find myself a bit disconnected from the ladies and your children, your families. There's a lot that goes on that would never come to me except through her. And so that's, I, I miss that a lot. And so it's, it's because of that. There's no problems with the team. And that brings us to this point. That's not why we're doing this. So I just wanted to set your minds at ease and clear that up. But please continue to pray for uh, our new leaders, our transition. We have assigned the elders a bit of an outline and a topic, if they will, somewhat of a text if they care to follow it. Well, I'm not going to hold them to it. But we are obviously looking for some encouragement and direction for leaders. So uh, with that, I'll turn over to Glenn. And then after him, Ken has a, a talk. And then I'll close. God bless you, Ken. Glenn. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. I'd like to read just a few verses here. Uh, and I'm jumping in, not doing any really fair justice to the book of Nehemiah, nor to Nehemiah himself. But I'd like to read verses uh, 4 through 11 in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, beginning with verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and to give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. That's Nehemiah 1 there, and that's somewhat of an introduction to the subject, the uh, subject that was assigned to me, thinking about Nehemiah. And I like to think about Nehemiah as an ordinary man, but he was the cupbearer, the king's cupbearer. Chapter 1, we notice the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Nehemiah was not a Levite. He was not a member of the, uh, Israel's priestly tribe. He did not have royal blood in his veins, no rich heritage, no physical strength or leadership experience. 
In fact, you will not find his father's name mentioned one other, except for one other time, and I think it's in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. That's really all we know of Nehemiah. The word Nehemiah means Jehovah comforts. Jehovah comforts. Think about it as a pastor. Jehovah comforts. Nehemiah was just an ordinary man, but with that he leaves with us a timeless example of how God can make a somebody out of a nobody. What a person can do if they do not care who gets the credit. And an example of who a person can become if they belong to the living God. This book leaves us without any excuse. If God can use him, he certainly can use each one of us, and to you as pastors, he can use you, and specifically to you, Lester and Crystal. He will and can use you. <clears throat> Every generation needs ordinary people who are willing to restore and rebuild. And again, I'm not implying that there was, needs to be a restoring here by no means, but people who are willing to stand up and work for the church and give themselves uh, of service to the church. In this ordinary man, I'd like for us to think this morning um, of one word, and that is the word character. Character. Character is like the solid foundation and frames of a house built to last. The reputation is just the finished product that people see from the street. You have a reputation, you have a character. People can have a reputation that looks beautiful from the outside and yet proves to be a shell when you open the front door. Characteristics are easy to observe and easy to understand, but they are impossible to apply unless you have an open, honest, vital relationship with God. And perhaps I think that is why this book starts with Nehemiah on his what? On his knees, in prayer. Mourning and fasting, we find that in verse 11. He had a burden for his people, and the city walls of Jerusalem were broken down. He was a broken-hearted person who is used to restore a broken city. And I'd like to list some of these characteristics, and I have, I think, ten of them, and we'll just briefly, quickly run through them. Uh, number one, some characteristics of Nehemiah that I think we can see in each one of us, but I think that we need to see in pastors as well that lead out. Number one, he knew he was called of God. He knew he was called of God. When everything else fails, whether you're called to be a Sunday school teacher, pastor, whatever else, God will give you strength and resolution to get you through till the job is done. Nehemiah started with a burden for Jerusalem, but the burden was not the call. The call was to rebuild. It was as he prayed to God and sought divine help that he received the call to leave his job and go to Jerusalem. If God calls you, have no fear. He certainly will see you through. And I can attest to that as well in the way God has worked in my life. Number two, he depended on prayer. And prayer was mentioned this morning already. Book of Nehemiah starts and ends with prayer. Do not pray for tasks to equal your powers. Pray for powers to equal your tasks. Number three, he had a vision and saw the greatness of the work. There are no small churches and there are no big preachers. There are no small churches and there are no big preachers. 
If you lose the vision, you will begin to cut corners. Never lose the vision, the vision that God has called you to. Otherwise, you begin to cut corners. Number four, he submitted to authority. The call of God is not an invitation to become independent and ignore authority. He respected the king, submitted his plans to him for his approval. And again, we could turn to scripture for that, that he went to the king and the king accepted it and approved. Even more, Nehemiah submitted to the word, the authority of God. And again, my plea to you as pastors has been, preach the word. Submit to the authority of the word of God. Just preach the pure word of God. Number five, he was organized in his work. <clears throat> he planned his work and worked the plan. And God blessed him. Nehemiah did not rush into the job, but secretly surveyed the situation and became acquainted with the facts. Again, as pastors, survey the job. I know there's a lot of work behind the scenes that you have done and are doing, and I bless you for it. Number six, he worked hard. Church life is hard work. It is hard work. And if it's not hard work, I question whether you're putting yourself into the job. Number seven, he sought to glorify God alone, humbly serve, and gave him the glory. He identified with the people and entered into their trials and their burdens and dangers. Again, I would love to turn to scripture. Number eight, he had courage. Someone has said that success is never final and failure is never fatal. Again, I'll repeat that. Someone has said that success is never final and failure is never fatal. He who loses wealth loses much. He who loses a friend loses much, but he who loses courage loses all. Avoid the pitfall of discouragement. Remember the truth of, that God's will is not always easy, but it is never impossible. God's will is not impossible. Rest in the fact that God will never command you to do something without providing the strength to do it. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Number nine, he enlisted others to work. True leaders don't try to do everything themselves. Leaders develop other leaders because they know how to discern spiritual gifts and the potential in their life. Number 10, he was determined. He was determined like Jesus. Nehemiah set his face like a flint and kept going, Isaiah 57. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Life on earth, would not be worth much if every source of tribulation was removed. Yet most of us rebel against the things that irritate us and count as heavy loss what ought to be rich gain. We are told that the oyster, and I am one that does not enjoy oysters, but uh, we are told that the oyster is wiser when an irritating object 
his opponent's mantle of his shell, he begins covering it with the most precious part of his being, and he fashions a pearl. The irritation that was causing is stopped by entrusting it with the pearly formation. Imagine that. A pearl is simply a victory over tribulation. Now I find it fascinating, if you want to just turn to chapter 6 briefly, um, there's different groups of people that Nehemiah talks about here, uh, but I'd like to notice two groups, and again, I'm not going to read, read the scripture there, but in verse 1 and 2, um, the singers and the, gatekeeper, the gatekeepers. <clears throat> While the singers provided praise for the city of Jerusalem, the gatekeepers provided protection for the city. And again, we could find that in chapter 11 as well. You know, the gatekeepers could say, or someone come, come to them and ask, hey, what do you do? Uh, I'm just a gatekeeper providing protection for the city. Interesting to learn that the Great Wall of China was breached by invaders at least four different times, and each time the Chinese guards were bribed. Can someone bribe you to allow something? Back in, uh, okay, the gates are, again, are as good as the character of the, of the guards. So we have the gates. Back in chapter 7, and verse 2, Nehemiah knew he needed help leading the city of Jerusalem, and he chose two men. And uh, notice there, the walls are up, the doors are hung, and notice the qualities that Nehemiah was looking for in chapter 7, again, verse 2, I think it's the last part. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Now, the Hebrew word for feared means to reverence or to honor. Faithful. Now, notice that these two qualities have nothing to do with what you and I can see, but everything to do about uh, the inner qualities. They were inner qualities of dependability and reverence for God. Notice also in verse 2, uh, it talks about men who gave of themselves, uh, who willingly offered. And, and the, the word there in the Hebrew would be volunteer. And I found it interesting that word volunteer is an interesting word. It means to be impelled by an inner urge to stand, to be compelled to be courageous. It can be translated uh, to read, to be noble. So as we look at this book of Nehemiah and, and Nehemiah's character and what he stood for and the qualities that he had, the city of Jerusalem flourished because of the gatekeepers, because of the guards, because of the maintenance workers, because of the singers, because of the priests, because of the farmers, because of the shepherds, and others who pulled their weight. Every church, mission, ministry, Christian causes move forward, not by a few people that are seeing such as our pastors, but by an unseen labor force of prayer warriors, volunteers throughout the congregations whose hearts have been moved them to do or moved them to be volunteers to support the pastor. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. It was said of Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah that some gave of themselves. The question I'd ask, 
to us, each one of us? Am I going to give of myself and whole support to our pastors? And I'm looking at myself and asking that question. May it be said of us, as we look at Nehemiah and the qualities that he had as the pastors and their qualities, but may we do our part in not giving just some of ourselves, but let's give all of ourselves in support to our pastors. Just in that closing comment, in uh, the last part in chapter 13, two or three times there in chapter 13, you notice in the last Sentence there, Nehemiah says, Remember me, O my God, for good. I thought it's interesting to, to notice that Nehemiah's prayer was to God, and my challenge to you as pastors is, we may not always remember you, but God does, and God will bless you. Mel? I guess words get expressed. I'm sorry for my emotions, but thanks. Bless you. Esther, pray. Before I start this morning, I'd like to uh, just thank the church for your caring over last weekend. As some of you know, um, my father-in-law was diagnosed with liver cancer. That cancer has spread throughout his um, abdominal cavity into other organs. And uh, Saturday night, in a matter of about 10 minutes, we decided to make a quick trip to Iowa. Sunday morning, we told a few people Sunday evening, we were blessed with gifts of money, snacks, and many, many prayers uh, for our trip. We left after church last Sunday evening and came back early Thursday morning in time for work Thursday. So I just want to thank you as a church. You have no idea what that means to us as a family, and uh, we're very grateful for that. I'm also humbled to be here this morning. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Mel set up what he called the Conflict Resolution Committee. Is that right, Mel? And three men were to, uh, chosen from the church. It was uh, Aaron Stolzfus, uh, Glenn, and myself. Aaron has since uh, resigned, and uh, Mark is going to be taking his place as elder. It's been a blessing to work with the, the pastoral team here uh, on a, a closer level than some of you may have, but it's also... Uh, been a, an encouragement to me to see men that are willing to work together. Times haven't always been easy. Sometimes there has been conflicts to resolve. So I'm thankful this morning for uh, our pastor team that we have here. Uh, never take them for granted. Pray for them. Lift them up. They need your prayers. They're normal human beings just like you and I with faults, flaws, blemishes, rough edges that need to be sanded. But we're all in it together, so I'm thankful for uh, the privilege to uh, be on the team and uh, support the leadership in that way. <clears throat> My assignment for this morning was uh, the life of Saul slash Paul. Uh, so I'm going to touch on his life briefly as I studied. 
I realize that there's an awful lot uh, in his life that we can take lessons from. So uh, I want to talk about his past life, what he was like before he met Christ, and then a bit after um, he met Christ on the road to Damascus. So who was the Apostle Paul? He was born in Tarsus, and uh, just a quick side note, he is not one of the original twelve. He would have been added later on uh, to the Apostle team, if you will, after his conversion. So he was born in Tarsus, he was a Roman citizen, in addition to his Roman name, he was given a Jewish name of, what was his Jewish name? Saul, right? So Saul was his Jewish name. Possibly in memory of Saul, who was Israel's first king. We don't know that for sure, but speculation has been made. He would have been from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, which uh, Paul's family would have belonged to. Uh, The Jewish heritage meant a lot to Paul, probably more than his Roman citizenship. He was a, a citizen of Rome. Unlike many of the Jews who had been scattered throughout the world, uh, converting to the Gentile way of life, Paul's family stayed in Jerusalem, and that's where he stayed as well. Uh, There's a few verses I'm going to read as I go along here in Philippians 3, and you can turn to that if you care to. Philippians 3, the latter part of that verse into uh, verse 6. I'm going to read that. Uh, All of my scripture is going to be read out of the New Living Translation this morning, so follow along as best you can in your uh, version that you have with you. Philippians 3, verse 3b. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obey the law without fault. So there's a quick rundown of what Paul thought of himself, or saw it would have been at the time, before he was converted. Acts 22, 3 and 4, Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. And also Galatians 1, 13 and 14. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. I was violently persecuted. How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was, for, I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. So, uh, again, who Paul thought he was as a, as a Jew. He was the elite. He was the leader. He uh, took his leadership seriously. So now moving on to uh, Saul's conversion... Probably one of the greatest events in church history following uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit there at Pentecost would have been uh, Paul's conversion. We believe that it took place somewhere in the 34 to 37 A.D. range, so it wasn't long after the early church would have started. It wouldn't have been long after Pentecost, uh, 
that uh, Saul was converted. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 9. We're going to read the account of his conversion there. I was trying to figure out where to start and stop with this, and it was kind of hard. So I think I'm going to read uh, 1 through 31 here in Acts 9. And listen carefully as, as I read and, and follow what's happening here. So when I understood where Paul came from, or Saul would have been, where he came from as a Jew, it was a lot easier for me to understand why he was out persecuting Christians. He really thought he was doing what he was supposed to do. We were going to get rid of all these Christ followers. They are not uh, obeying God. So he really thought he was up to something until God got a hold of him here. So let's read uh, Acts 9, 1 to 31. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. Way is capitalized, followers of Christ, disciples. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I have heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest anyone who calls upon the name, who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, "Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel." I'm going to stop right there for a minute. How many of you look at your calling as something chosen of God? Glenn mentioned. Uh, Sunday school teaching, leading songs, whatever we do in the church. It takes a lot of people working together. How many times do you look at that as your calling? Not all of us can be pastors and leaders in the church, but we have an awful lot to do in the pews in supporting our leadership. Okay, reading on here. Let's see. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who approached, I'm sorry, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. 
Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devotion, sorry, such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked, And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot, so during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It also grew in numbers. So that's a quick rundown of Saul's conversion. What an amazing story. None of us today have quite a conversion experience like Saul had. That doesn't mean that it's not important. It just wasn't a bright light from heaven. I don't know of any one of you, anyhow. I know most of you. Uh, no one has shared that with me if you have. If you have, please do. So in an instant, his life was changed. The Jewish law had, was replaced by Jesus himself. He became the leading champion of the cause which he had tried to overthrow. He saw that his persecuted, persecuting activity had been sinful. He realized that it's not about keeping the law that makes a person justified in God's sight, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, Paul was a great man. I have no doubt that on the way to Damascus he rode a very high horse, but a few seconds sufficed to alter the man. How God brought him down. Uh, that was Charles Spurgeon's um, version of Saul. What is something that stands out to you uh, following his conversion? Is there anyone, anything that you think of that stands out following Saul's conversion? Uh, any verses that you think of? Uh, I'd like to open it up. If you have something that stands out to you about his life after his conversion, uh, feel free to share it. Anyone? He got bold. He what? He, he got bold. Wasn't he bold before? The wrong bold. That, that's right. Yep. Yeah, he was very bold. Anyone else? Okay. Yes. Uh, very popular. So before his conversion, he wasn't ashamed of what he was doing. He was going to slaughter anyone because he thought it was, he was doing what is right. After his conversion, he was not ashamed to associate with Christ. <clears throat> Anything else? 
All right, he confessed that he was the chief of sinners. That's right. Uh, before his conversion, also, uh, he stood at um, Stephen's stoning. He was there. I think he held the garments of the men that were stoning him, so we know he was there. He was a chief of sinners. That's right. Okay, uh, moving on. How many books did Paul write in the New Testament? Uh, we know that there's seven for sure. There's a few others that uh, he may have been part author, but maybe not all of. Some say 13, 14, maybe as, uh, as many as 20, but we don't know exactly how many books of the Bible he wrote. Um, how many missionary journeys did Paul go on? Does anyone know? Three? Four? I think it was four, uh, according to what I found. Uh, three main ones, and then the fourth one... Um, forget exactly where he went on the fourth one. I checked it up and didn't write them down here. So I think, yeah, I think it was four different missionary journeys. So when he became a Christian, uh, that was his full-time job. He was in full-time ministry. He didn't have another, another income. He was relying on the churches uh, to live. He didn't have much uh, when he was uh, ministering for Christ. How many churches did he start? Again, we don't know for sure. 12, 13, 14, maybe up to 20, some people think. But he started a lot of different churches. He was a leader for Christ. He totally turned around his life and went all out for Christ. There's a, um, a story in Acts 16 I'd like you to turn to. I'm going to read. Uh, this took place on his uh, second missionary journey. And one thing that, that I found interesting, too, about the life of Paul is... Uh, following his conversion, he wasn't by himself. He often had someone to go with him. Uh, we hear Paul and Silas, which is what this was here on his second missionary journey, and he had other men that he would go with. So rather than going by himself, he had other people to go with him. And I thought about that in our setting as a church. One person isn't leading the church. It takes a team working together, and those people are always training uh, younger people, younger gener the younger generation uh, is taking over. So let's read here in Acts 16. I'm going to read uh, 16 to 40. It's probably one of my favorite stories of Paul, uh, Paul and Silas in this case. Let's read here, uh, Acts 16, verse 16. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that, en that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were pouting. No, they were praying. They were praying and singing. Isn't that amazing? 
They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, (coughs) Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. They brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, Let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, The city officials have said, You and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, They have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, so they came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia, There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left the town. So what a great story, how they were tied up, beaten, tied up in prison, and then they got out, and they continued right on where they left off. They weren't going to be um, discouraged by what had taken place the night before. Paul, like Jesus, brought good news to outsiders. In Jesus' ministry, the outsiders were the social outcasts, In Paul's ministry, the outsiders were the Gentiles. That was Paul's mission, were uh, were, were the Gentiles. Paul's death is unknown. Many think he was probably beheaded in Rome, uh, dying a martyr for his faith under the Roman emperor Nero as part of the Christian execution. So that would have taken place sometime uh, probably in the 60 to 65 AD range. So so, uh, Paul may have been about that old at the time of his death, but it is not uh, known exactly how he would have died. A few words of, of Paul's um, writings that I'd like to read here. Philippians 3, you can turn with me to Philippians 3, 7 to 14, uh, maybe one of his more well-known passages, but it sums up uh, his life, I think, um, in a neat way. Philippians 3, 7 to 14 I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Jesus has, what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power 
that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possessing the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on, one, on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. So I trust that's our desire this morning, that we're pressing on toward the goal. Uh, as we look to Lester for leadership, let's lift him up. Uh, we need to be a congregation that uh, follows, that obeys our leaders and encourages them. So may, may we press on toward the prize, the heavenly prize. In order for us to be disciples of Christ, we must first have a conversion experience. Who is God of your life? Like I said earlier, we've all had a conversion experience, uh, those of us that are Christians. But even though it wasn't as dramatic as, as Saul's, we still have a, uh, we need to have a conversion experience. Obedience to the law is not enough. We must have a relationship with Christ and put our faith and trust in Him. And uh, Paul realized that. If God can redeem a disciple killer like Saul, he can use anyone for his glory to build his kingdom. <clears throat> Any one of us can come to Christ and be that leader. I'm going to close with a, a quote from Tony Evans. While many of us are waiting for God to fix what is wrong, he is waiting on us to step up as men of faith and do what is right. May God bless you all. I can certainly say um, God's word was preached. Thank you, Glenn and Ken, for being willing to do that this morning. Certainly impressed with, the, uh, with Nehemiah, the thought of being an ordinary man. Certainly, that's all of us. We are only special as we're anointed and empowered by God's grace. And certainly, that's, that, that's my prayer for Lester and Crystal as they, as they continue serving. Also notice in Saul's life, um, his life before Christ and after. And it's pretty obvious that Saul was very driven and motivated, had a lot of energy, had a lot of goals. But they were the wrong goals. They were the wrong, his energy was directed to the wrong uh, work or purpose. But then as he met, after he met Jesus, he still had the same energy, that same drive, that same motivation, just directed in a different direction. And, and I was, I'm always blessed when I compare Saul's life before Christ and after. And certainly God can use even a disciple killer like Saul, change him and turn that around and have a soul winner. Disciple killer turned into a soul winner. And I was so blessed. Let's kneel.
before the Lord as we pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessings of being here this morning, for hearing your word preached. Thank you for your faithfulness to us as a church. Thank you for blessing these two brothers with the anointing of your spirit this morning as they preach your word. Thank you, especially for your interest in the church and the, uh, the, the abundant instruction and direction we have from your word regarding leadership in the church. Thank you that you have blessed our team here, and we pray a continued anointing of your Holy Spirit among us as a leadership team. Thank you for the elders and the insight and the direction that they bring us as well. And so we pray, pray your continued blessing this afternoon and evening. Thank you especially for the, the church at Lincoln as they, as they seek your will this afternoon. They are also looking to add leadership persons, and we pray that your spirit would uh, direct this service, that your will would be done in this as well. And so we want to ask your continued blessing on them and us as we gather this evening again that uh, this would all be done to your honor and to your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.